Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Hi, this is Sarah Reeves from New Society Publishers. We are big fans of the Abundant Edge podcast. Oliver's guests talk about so many of the same topics that we publish on, and he talks with a lot of our authors too. We are proud to be a sponsor of this podcast that is doing such valuable work spreading the word about how to create a finer future together. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. If you're looking for solutions-oriented books, please visit our online store at newsociety.com, other online retailers, or visit a fine bookstore near you. All right, everybody. Before I get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new project that I've just launched. Now, after years of highlighting and promoting the knowledge, wisdom, and projects of innovators and leaders in regenerative living through this podcast, I've realized that this audio format can only ever reach so many people. There are so many others out there who engage more with other forms of learning. That's why I've started the Abundant Edge YouTube channel. Now that I'm back on the road and visiting regenerative and sustainable projects in my travels, I'll be profiling the people and organizations that are making a real impact on their environments and their communities. My goal is to show as many people as I can reach that you don't have to have a lot of money, access to a ton of resources, or have a fancy education under your belt to make a real difference in this world and create change. Now my first mini documentary highlights the unbelievable achievements of a small community called Kishaya in the highlands of Guatemala. More than 30 years ago, the land where the village is located was owned by a plantation owner who kept the ecosystem under monoculture cultivation and exploited the local people who worked for slave wages on the farm. After the owner defaulted on his loans, the bank repossessed the land and offered it back to the local workers as payment for the wages owed to them. The villagers then redistributed their terrain among the original 80 families who took back control of the plantation and divided it equally between themselves so they might care for it and create a better life for their families. Now, decades later, the descendants of these pioneers have helped to transform the land into a profound abundance which you'll see in the documentary. Now, if you want to see the rest, you'll have to check it out for yourself. You can find it really easily just by typing in Abundant Edge into the YouTube search bar. And be sure to keep an eye out for more short films highlighting the projects that I visit as I travel through Mexico and beyond. I'll also be releasing tutorials on everything from design theory to building and gardening techniques in the upcoming months. I really hope that this will become a resource that, like the podcast, helps to inspire you to live your highest potential by living regeneratively. In continuing this month's focus on fixing the food system, I had the pleasure of speaking to a personal hero of mine, Sean Sherman, the author of The Sioux Chef. Now, Sean has been the recipient of a First People's Fund Fellowship, the Bush Foundation Fellowship, National Center's 2008 First American Entrepreneurship Award, the 2018 James Beard Award for the Best American Cookbook, and a 2019 James Beard Award for Leadership. Sean has been cooking around the U.S. and internationally for the last 30 years, and his main focus has been on the revitalization and awareness of indigenous food systems in a modern culinary context. Sean has also studied extensively on his own to determine the foundations of these food systems and to gain a full understanding of bringing back a sense of Native American cuisine to the modern world. Now, in this interview, Sean and I talk about how he became passionate 
about the history and traditions of indigenous food. He starts by educating me on how North America got to the point where indigenous culture and food systems have been all but wiped out and why it's so important for us to reconnect with the native plants and animals that used to nourish the original peoples of North America. We also cover traditional farming and land management methods, why they're an essential part of switching to a more ecological food system, and the health benefits that this way of eating can have on our bodies as well as the land. Sean also gave me advice on how to transition to a pre-colonial food system that goes much further than just the native traditions of North America. This is one of the most essential perspectives on fixing the food system through holistic means that connects nutrition to land stewardship, cultural connection, and spiritual revival. So I'll turn things over now to Sean. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, I've been looking forward to getting in touch with you for quite some time, especially because of some of the parallels in, in our work. Um, you and I were just talking about how, you know, I've been living in a small indigenous community here in Guatemala, and you've been working with the indigenous communities around uh, the northern part of the, the United States, which is very near where I grew up as a kid as well. Um, so could you tell me a little bit, first of all, about your upbringing and how you became passionate about the history and the traditions of indigenous food? Well, I was born and raised on Pine Ridge, South Dakota, and I'm enrolled with the Ogallala Lakota Sioux Tribe. Um, all my family, both my parents were born and raised on Pine Ridge. And, you know, I started working with food at a pretty young age. My mom moved to South the Reservation right before I started high school, and I started working in restaurants when I was about 13. And I just worked restaurants all through high school and college and eventually moved to Minneapolis um, shortly after college and, uh, you know, crawled my way up into an executive chef position fairly quickly in the cities. And I've been chefing in Minneapolis area for uh, since around 2000. Um, a few years into my chef career, I just all of a sudden had this epiphany moment. Um, and I was actually, um, I was working really hard in Minneapolis and then I, kind of got burned out of one job and took a little break. So I just uh, flew down to Mexico and ended up living in the state of Nayarit in a small town called San Pancho. Um, and I just got really interested in some of the indigenous peoples that were of that region. And, you know, and it just kind of struck me that uh, I didn't really know that much about, um, you know, my own indigenous background, you know, so I started looking at it through food and you know, I could, you know, it was kind of striking to realize that I could name off uh, hundreds of European recipes off the top of my head and barely a handful of recipes from the Lakota that I thought would have been traditional, you know, without the influence of European. Um, so it kind of threw me on a path to really try to understand and, you know, what is Native American foods? What were my Lakota ancestors eating? You know, how are indigenous peoples, you know, you know, what were some of the commonalities that people were utilizing with food? Um, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew. So, you know, I started first just trying to research Lakota, but then it eventually started growing and growing and then moving out to Minnesota. I was really focused, uh, learning a lot more about um, how they were living in those regions and on how some of the Anishinaabe Ojibwe tribes were, um, utilizing their food systems. And then, you know, today we we're looking at basically all of North America. Um, and how indigenous food practices are, you know, immense and extremely diverse, but there's so many commonalities throughout. And we really try to celebrate that diversity and the indigeneity um, through the food systems. Um, and there's just so much to explore. 
See, I think it's fascinating and probably very common among native communities like your own experience where you had a stronger connection growing up with the food and the culture of the colonizers rather than your own community. And what was it or in fact, could you educate me a little bit on how North America in particular got to the point where indigenous culture and food systems have nearly all been wiped out? Well, we look, you know, especially in the U.S. and Canada, um, it's really the colonial approach that um, was really destructive towards indigenous peoples. And a lot of this was really recent history for um, a lot of indigenous communities. So we look at just the U.S., for for example, you know, um, you know, when the, when the U.S. is a brand new country in the late 1700s, most of what is considered the U.S. is completely under indigenous control at that point in time. You know, and it doesn't really, the U.S. government, you know, doesn't really push hard until even after the Civil War in the 1840s. And then they just really set their sights on taking over all of this indigenous land um, stretching out to the West Coast. Um, and we see during that time period, the mid to the late 1800s, just, you know, the complete theft of all these indigenous lands. I mean, what really was destructive was the kind of the forced assimilation efforts of wiping away so much indigenous culture um, through knowledge, basically. So we see these generations of kids being forced to learn, um, you know, not what they should have been learning. You know, they should have been learning thousands of generations of knowledge of how to live sustainably, utilizing plants and animals around them, you know, how to hunt, how to fish, how to gather, how to farm, how to teach others, how to do all of that. And instead, they're being forced to speak English and learn different religions and, you know, being taught skills that were very servitude, like carpentry and house cleaning and sewing and so forth. And so for a lot of indigenous communities like my own, like that was just going on. Like my great grandfather was still growing up traditional on the plains in the 1850s. But by the end of his lifetime, he sees his kids, uh, you know, he sees his family getting forced onto reservation. He sees his kids going through the boarding schools. And he eventually sees his kids grow up and fight for the U.S. government. And that all happened, you know, in one lifetime. So for me, I was just trying to go backwards just a couple of generations to really try to understand, like, where did all that knowledge go and how much can you save and how much can you pull out of it? So we see places, um, you know, in Mexico is a different story because there is a lot of uh, indigenous food ways still left alive. And we look at, you know, the food system is still largely more indigenous than it is French or Spanish influenced, you know, with the mixed corns and the chilies and the squash and the beans and use of insects and all these kinds of things. But for the U.S. and Canada, especially because of those boarding schools and residential schools of just, you know, reprogramming so many indigenous peoples, we lost. We started losing so much knowledge, um, but we're at a point where we can start to relearn, reintroduce, and revitalize a lot of those knowledges um, just by practicing them, basically. Yeah, and I, you know, I found a lot of that in my own experiences here living in Guatemala, how though there are still very strong connections to indigenous food culture, that even without the forced assimilation that has been more prevalent in the North American countries, there's still an ingression of a lot of colonialized food, maybe not forced on it the same way, but definitely incentivized through global economic models and what they can make money off of versus what has less value on a global market. You're starting to see heirloom varieties of corn and other staple crops disappear. 
Um, amaranth isn't used nearly as much. Uh, and there's actually a lot of people around our communities that don't know of it or haven't used it. And I mean, there's a huge amount of loss in the cultural diversity and in the dietary um, authenticity of these places, even without that kind of um, government sponsored pressure to move away from the authenticity of their culture. Uh, how have you worked? Yeah with some of the many environmental benefits of reconnecting to the native flora and fauna of the places that we inhabit. Because when we start to talk about cultivation of just the crops that arrived from colonization, those weren't necessarily appropriate for the lands or for the communities that were prevalent before these people arrived. Correct. You know, so, you know, we really believe in trying to absorb as much knowledge from, you know, our indigenous ancestors as possible and apply those teachings today to, you know, have this kind of evolution of what is a modern look at indigenous food systems. Um, and, you know, it's really about changing the way we look at our own food access because we can create a lot of our own food access. You know, so we look at, you know, um, searching out and finding a lot of those heirloom varietals of um, indigenous agriculture that still exist today with the corns and sunflower and amaranth and so forth, but also really being aware, hyper aware of regions and the plants around us um, and the seasons that they come in and looking at, um, you know, indigenous harvesting techniques and, you know, just understanding like how much more food we could be adding to our, to our uh, to our pantries and to our food systems in general. There's so many of this, you know, plant diversity around us, no matter where we are, um, and so much of it's completely underutilized, um, pretty much across the board because of the, you know, colonial food systems that we've been living in for so long. So we practice really hard to, um, you know, learn learn about the plants around us and learn how to implement with them and be role models basically of how to bring that back into our diet um, so we just see a lot of value in that part particularly but we also believe you know that we can be smarter as humans and start to you know really re-landscape um, utilizing plants that grow well and are from our region to create a better source of food around us because we could just be using our space so much better you know as you know, modern humans, we can pretty much landscape any way we want to. And if we were smart about it, we would just be putting food all over the place and really utilizing those resources. And as chefs and culinary people, you know, it's exciting to see like all of these extra flavors and all of these, you know, plants. And, you know, it's almost a never ending database out there, um, especially when we're looking at something as large as North America as a whole. Yeah, that's one of the things that I really love about this approach that you've taken, not only in your cookbook, but also also through your nonprofit and community work, is that there are so many different ways to connect with this. If you're a foodie, you get access to uh, new flavors and combinations that we're not used to getting. Uh, if you're an environmentalist, this can have a huge positive impact on the environments uh, in the way that they're cultivated. If you're interested in reviving community and culture, this is a whole nother aspect of being able to connect with the landscape and the history of uh, indigenous peoples. So let's focus a little bit on the nutritional aspect. What do you think can be gained by rediscovering the native foods of wherever somebody might be living? Because, you know, perhaps someone in, in Europe is listening to this and has kind of strayed from the indigenous foods of their area as well. How can this kind of improve your health and your lifestyle at the same time? 
Well, just the introduction of a lot more plant species in general, I think, is really important for our diets, you know, because, you know, typically, especially Americans, probably less than 20 plant varietals on a given year, just because they're buying the exact same things at the grocery store over and over again. Um, and I think it's just really important to connect with the nature around you and to realize that there's, you know, with these indigenous perspectives, because we see this on a global scale, you know, we see this, especially where colonialism affected a lot of areas. So almost all of Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, South America, Central America, we see the exact same story of, you know, this adverse effect of colonial powers coming in and kind of forced assimilation happening. Um, and this kind of homogenizing situation that happens with our food um, and, our, and our global food system in general. So we see reaching back to how indigenous peoples, you know, having that knowledge of thousands of years of generational, you know, um, experience to live sustainably in your regions with the seasons using very little is such important knowledge to, you know, just really be more delicate and more connected to our area and our land um, and the soil and the plants around us. And of course, we're in a modern day and things have changed drastically over the past couple hundred years. We still, um, you know, this still can be very um, useful knowledge to really start to repair a lot of damage that has been done by this kind of colonial perspective of just ripping um, resources out for monetary value and instead really look at how we can repair our landscapes to really provide more food and health around us, which is really what's most important. Certainly, yeah, and for for anybody anywhere, really, I think the homogenization of how we plant, cultivate, and sell food has limited our options not only for flavor profiles but for nutritional value and for plants that could have so many other benefits aside from their uh, edibility but also for restoring soil health, uh, erosion control, health, uh, the health of waterways and other uh, sort of side benefits aside from from what they're intentionally planted for. Now let's get into exactly. the kind of more indulgent aspect of this uh, this reinitiation of food culture. Let's talk about it from a flavor profile because I know among many other talents, you <laughs> really know your way around these ingredients in the kitchen. Can you talk about some of the lesser known ingredients that you've worked with and had amazing results in reintroducing into a palate that hasn't uh, experience them in a while. You know, we just, you know, really kept our eyes open as to what can we use, like what, what is out there and what can we put on our plates. And as chefs, it's fun to be able to experiment with all sorts of flavors and all sorts of different techniques and how many ways can you, um, play with these flavors and manipulate a certain, you know, product to, to see how many different things can do with it. You know, so, and we really just try to make food taste like where we are so we can use things like um, you know, of course, true wild rice where we are in our region is a huge staple. We have tons of wild ginger, lots of wild, uh, like ramps and onions. We have, uh, lots of rose, wild rose hips out there. Um, we've got, we use a lot of tree flavorings like tamarack. We use a lot of, uh, tree saps like the birch, the box elder, uh, of course, maple. Um, and we have, and tons of berries and fruits are all over the place. And because we're living in this modern day, there's just tons of invasive species that are, you know, really useful because they are actually very edible. And we should be eating more of those, especially because yeah. um, some of them thrive and take over. And we could just be doing all sorts of cool stuff with these plants that, you know, are trying to take over so much of these areas. So, 
it's just being smart, you know, and it's fun to play with, you know, and we introduce people to things like simple things like cedar and maple tea, you know, just using cedar bow and sweeten it slightly, just slightly with a little bit of pure maple um, and just showing people that there's all these flavors around us and they really need to start seeing that, you know, and, you know, the first cookbook was just kind of an introduction of hoping that people would start to think about the food right outside their back door and the history of land and really paying respect to, you know, the land that we currently occupy and the indigenous peoples who have lived there for generations before Europeans and how they were able to survive sustainably for so long using, you know, very little again, but doing it really wisely. And so through the lens of cooking, how has rediscovering the native foods and especially the medicines, which we haven't talked about as much so far, can have so many more benefits mm-hmm. than, than just like the nutrition in your diet. What else can it do for the health and understanding of the people, uh, the culture and the history of a place? Well, I think all indigenous communities around the world see food um, and medicine as basically one. You know, So food is medicine. Um, and you know, understanding these plants carry um, many values. Like Every plant has a purpose. And you can find those purposes through um, edibility, through medicinal, or just through crafting and, you know, also just like repair of the soil. Like you said, you can smartly put plants around to, you know, help an ecosystem develop them into something stronger. So it's really slowly trying to piece all those pieces together, you know, and for us, you know, we center everything around um, food and, and the culinary and the nutrition and the health that comes through that but being very aware that there's all of these other properties that these, uh, especially these plants, you know, carry. And for us, plants were really um, the key to unlocking a lot of this knowledge. Like plant knowledge was power for us, you know, because um, you know, we use a lot of different proteins and stuff too, but, you know, plants were really where we started to learn. And it's really where we need to focus um, as we move forward in the future. Absolutely. Let's, um, let's focus a little bit now on the work and the initiatives that you've promoted through the nonprofit Natives. Could you talk a little bit about how that organization was formed and what it aims to achieve with local communities around North America? Well, we see we, we saw the, the biggest needs out there around these foods um, and just getting Native foods out there everywhere. I mean, we feel like there should be Native restaurants all over the place because no matter where you are in North America, you're standing on Indigenous land. Um, and you have giant cities that are food capitals of the world, New York and Chicago and L.A., and there's zero Native American restaurants in those huge cities. So, you know, it just didn't make sense. And plus, you know, a lot of these indigenous communities across the board and these reservations have been suffering through, you know, a, you know a perpetual oppression for so long with extremely high poverty rates, with extremely high, um, you know, just uh, health implications, health problems because of the food access that they have. So, we wanted to really try to tackle that food access issue to try to impact the health and to really get people excited about eating more traditional because those traditional foods are so healthy because we cut out European ingredients like dairy, wheat flour, processed cane sugar, even beef, pork, and chicken to showcase all sorts of other things. And it became, it just happened to be an extremely healthy diet to eat that way. Um, so we wanted to be able to get this out everywhere. So we created the Nonprofit Natives, which is an acronym for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. Um, and what we're doing is opening up a, uh, a brand called Indigenous Food Lab, which we're starting first off where we are here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the goal of the food lab is to be a live restaurant that has a classroom training kitchen so we can offer indigenous education, especially around food, 
so we can build curriculum around indigenous agriculture, seed keeping and saving, soil management, farming techniques, wild foods and ethnobotany, um, permaculture design, cooking techniques, food preservation, history, all of these pieces. Um, and just, you know, having someplace that can focus just on indigenous education is going to be extremely valuable. And then using ourselves as this food lab to be able to have people come in to train, to learn, using the restaurant as a training facility so people can work alongside us so we can build skills. So their second goal is to work with the, the tribal communities directly around us to help them to develop some kind of food entity for their own community that will really help spur and impact health and create something that's particular to them, their tribe, their land, their language, their history. Um, and just kind of seeing the satellites pop up around us. And then our, our final goal is to take the indigenous food lab and to mimic it everywhere we can. So placing it in cities all across North America, and it could be in Seattle, it could be in Denver. You know, we want to hit cities in um, Canada, we want to be up in Alaska, we want to eventually be down in Mexico, and really just be global role models and how we can, you know, really impact community health through just having a place that promotes healthy foods of the land, and especially for the indigenous peoples. Tell me about a story where you have seen someone who perhaps was missing the connection to their original culture sort of rediscover what is possible and the value of what their culture has to bring, even in the modern context, through the education of food that you provide uh, both in your restaurant and with this organization. Well, you know, um, a lot of the cultures, a lot of the communities in the U.S., a lot of the indigenous communities have lost a lot of their food ways, you know, especially because I was growing up on Pine Ridge and we saw Indian tacos as native foods, which it is, but, you know, traditionally it hasn't been around that long. Um, so we pushed back against that notion and, you know, we just kind of like there was no reason that fry bread should identify every single indigenous person all across the board because we were so diverse, you know, throughout North America. Um, and, you know, we just really wanted to help bring these communities back together. So we've done a lot of work and been able to travel to lots of communities to try to reintroduce like what is true, what are true native foods and what are true native foods. Um, particularly to whichever region we might be in. So we've been doing, you know, showcasing and working with other tribes and doing dinners all over the place, whether we're, you know, way up in uh, Washington State or, you know, doing foods to to showcase, like, what would the indigenous foods of Manhattan be or working with tribes in the Southwest or, you know, around us here in Minnesota and just giving, giving people, opening up a door for people to see that we can revitalize and reintroduce and re-identify what our traditional foods are um, and, you know, evolve them into the future. So this becomes more of a modern thing. Um, but we see the, we see the need for it, um, out there and we see a lot of people really getting on board and we see a lot of movement because there's other chefs out there around the country doing the same work. There's a lot of native seed keepers, um, helping to, helping communities grow out and find a lot of these cool seed varietals that are very particular to some regions. We see a lot of academics um, um, pushing harder and, and further into the importance of indigenous knowledge on our food systems and our on everything, our community health in general. So there's just a there's an immense amount of demand out there, and I think you know indigenous peoples can really be role models um, of how we can live more sustainably um, using these knowledges of the past. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. Now, we explored just a little while ago how this can affect the health of the earth 
around these areas as well within the communities that we've talked about and on mass mostly because like from a permaculturalist perspective i think this knowledge of how to cultivate and reconnect with native foods can be even more important than learning how to say for example grow tomatoes or beef all over the world in places where they're you know not natively from talk about what mm-hmm. this could potentially do for the health of our landscapes and restoring the the flora and the fauna that have otherwise essentially been wiped out well i think we have um plenty of dam data out there of how damaging you know this monoculture um situation we are in in on a global scale how dangerous gmos can be and are currently i mean you know we're basically giant uh you know uh, giant lab experiments experiments to see what's going to happen with us um, after, you know, having all of this, um, chemical and, you know, modified organisms out there, you know, taking over so much of our landscape. Um, and I think it's just going to be really important for people to realize that we can start to rebuild and revitalize our soil and our health and our community, you know, through plants that are naturalized to our area and have a lot more plant diversification, which can bring on so much more. So there's just, in, you know, I feel like it's starting to happen right now on this global scale. So we've been able to be at conferences with indigenous peoples from around the world who are all facing these same problems and all starting to wake up and to kind of push forward to going back to a more traditional way that really reconnects with the earth and repairs the earth. Because, um, you know, indigenous peoples are the original stewards of the landscape no matter where they are. And it's important to start to bring back, again, those lessons from the past. While we're on the topic of the land around the food systems and and how it supports it, I know you've been traveling quite a bit doing research in Native communities all through North America for an upcoming book. Can you talk a little bit about how some of these traditions and cultures have reflected the type of microclimates or macroclimates and soil conditions and ecosystems where they were primarily located and what you've learned in, in interacting with those? Well, you know, part of it is just, we feel like we're just starting um, in a lot of places, especially around here in the U.S. and Canada, too, because we, during the 1800s, many areas of North America went through such drastic change, you know, with complete deforestation happening in many areas, with um, just the introduction of barbed wire fences, you know, and cutting off the natural paths of wild animals returning the soil and plants. Um, to introduction of massive amounts of cattle and other plant species that aren't natural to our region, and just so much change on such a massive scale. Um, so, but we see, um, you know, certain little groups here and there starting to really trying to turn that backwards and go back to a time when they are being a lot more aware of, you know, how the soil originally was, the animals that were there, and um, seeing what they can do. I mean, it's going to be a, a lot of work and a lot of effort um, to make this happen. But we see the indigenous tribes as being a really great place to start because they have, um, you know, this, uh, you know, they have sovereignty basically in many of these areas to make the decisions to go ahead and start doing this in their own right. Um, so we just hope we're hoping that these indigenous communities can start to be, you know, role models again of how to really. Um, push for that and how to really make that change happen. 
Sean, I find this so inspiring, especially as I've seen smaller efforts of this type in the indigenous communities that I've worked with and lived around uh, here, mostly in Central America. But even when I actually when my family first came from Japan to the United States, we spent about six months living near uh, a native reservation in western Wisconsin. And that was some of my first introduction to the United States. Um, I think this work is amazingly important. Can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you, your organizations, and how they might be able to help support this initiative? Yeah, well, people can always check out our website. So they can go to sue-chef.com, and it's spelled S-I-O-U-X-chef.com. Um, they can check out our nonprofit, which is natifs.org, and it's N-A-T-I-F-S.org. Um, and, you know, keep an eye out for the Indigenous Food Lab as we get ready to open. And, you know, if people want to support us, they can feel free to make donations on our website at natives.org. Um, and we just, you know, and, you know, have people, if they're interested, just follow us on social medias. We post a lot of our adventures and a lot of our creations out there. And, uh, you know, we have a growing, uh, growing list of supporters and we're excited to see what we can do in the future. Marvelous. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time. It has been such a pleasure talking to you. I really look forward to connecting more when I get back to Minnesota to visit my brothers. I would love to see not only the restaurant, but hopefully visit some of the communities out there as well and learn more about this uh, when I get the chance to get out there again. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. You take care. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.